You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Emma Atkinson and Matt Meyer. What happens when a divisive tech maven swoops in to buy one of the largest social media platforms? In the days after Elon Musk acquired Twitter, it was pure chaos. Parody accounts and hate speech exploded. More than half of all staff were either fired or left willingly. The entire accessibility team responsible for coding associated with alt text and video captions was dismantled. Entire industries were disrupted, with journalists panicking and academics fleeing to other social networks like LinkedIn and Mastodon. But Twitter still stands and remains in the news, whether it's because of Kanye West's anti-Semitic tweets or Musk's latest trolling. Forbes estimates Musk's wealth at just shy of $200 billion, making him the world's richest person. He can afford more than a few bad business ventures. Is his purchase of Twitter just a billionaire buying a larger megaphone, the modern equivalent of a railroad tycoon scooping up a newspaper? Or is it part of his seemingly never-ending quest for relevance? For this episode of Radio Ed, we examine Twitter's acquisition and current business model with Daniels College of Business Professor Michael Nolick. If you're here for more of the social media side of the story, make sure to stick around. I'll be intercutting some of the communication theory that has made these last few weeks so interesting. When you or your colleagues are kind of teaching the future CEOs and managers of the world how to handle layoffs, what's the broad playbook for something large scale like what happened with Twitter? There was a, uh, I had a, our department head, Charles Donaraj, sits around in an email about um, Snap CEO and how he approached the layoffs, which was a much more humanistic sort of way, you know, not only like these other CEOs saying, oh, it's our responsibility, which they were now they're all saying, it's my responsibility. We grew too fast. That's kind of like the buzzword of Silicon Valley right now. Um, my responsibility, but yeah, you, you still are being laid off right before the holidays. So, haha. They, you know, the Snap CEO was was going into the detail on what happened, and then giving the C, giving the employees much more compensation and work training opportunities and search opportunities and really transitional opportunities than I've seen in these other companies. So it's a much more sympathetic, moralistic way of what to approach layoffs of saying, yeah, this is a necessary evil um, in our business. But this is not something I want to do. And because of that, I'm going to do it in the best way I can, which is here's money, here's insurance, here's transitional resources. So I'm not putting you out in the cold. And, you know, I'm th- this won't take into effect till really after the haul, even though I'm forming you now to get you prepared, you know, the, the money and all that and the bonuses, I'm still giving those out through mid-year. And so I think that's a much better way, at least from a public relations, reputation, even moral and ethical perspective and way to handle layoffs and not just Twitter, many of other companies do as well. And with Twitter, it didn't really play out that way. So were the speed of the layoffs kind of cause for concern or is it just another example of Elon Musk kind of cutting through the corporate red tape? Can it be a little bit of both in that type of situation? Well, it's not even really Elon Musk. It's a typical acquisition strategy. I mean, this is what you see in acquisitions. Now, the funny thing is in acquisitions, it's usually companies that are involved. So one company trying to restructure the acquiring company to fit into its space, presence, market, things like that. Um, this is a, an individual <laughs> buying a company and basically doing the same strategy as an acquisition strategy. And part of that is just swift layoffs in order to remake the culture in the image of the acquirer. 
For a long time, Twitter was the premier source of news as it happens. In my decade as a newspaper journalist, the use of Twitter was part of my performance review. Audience engagement was a huge part of a journalist's job, not just gathering and presenting the news. It was also a space for like-minded folks to gather, for better and worse. Academics, hobbyists, marginalized communities, and more all found a sense of camaraderie there. But there were also spaces for white supremacists and all other kinds of hate speech, sparked by agitators and politicians alike. Twitter famously banned former U.S. President Donald Trump in the wake of the riots at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. That ban, alongside many other barrings, were undone by Musk, a self-professed free speech absolutist. This was put to the test early in December when Twitter banned Kanye West for tweeting a picture of a swastika blended with the Star of David, an especially extreme example of the hate speech that has bloomed on Twitter since the change in ownership. The Center for Countering Digital Hate, a watchdog group, said the daily use of the N-word under Musk is triple the 2022 average and the use of slurs against gay men and trans persons are up 58% and 62% respectively. One of Nalik's areas of expertise is activist CEOs. What happens when a company's leader brushes up against the sensibilities of the board, shareholders, and customer base? For Musk and Twitter, the situation is somewhat different. Musk is one man leveraging his business holdings to buy a company. This isn't Jeff Bezos using Amazon to purchase the Washington Post. This is Elon Musk, front and center in the day-to-day operations of Twitter. Some kind of call Elon Musk a, a champion of free speech. Some call him a trolling narcissist. Either way, Twitter has made a bunch of headlines because of Musk's consistent comments kind of throughout this process. How does somebody like Elon Musk potentially help a company like Twitter with his personality and the way he handles that? And how does it potentially hurt a company like Twitter? Well, I've seen a, I've seen data actually yesterday that Twitter's downloads, Twitter participation rates, Twitter, you know, those sort of things that it, that indicate activity at Twitter have actually increased substantially, you know, outside the the kind of the margin of error there. And so I think the public relations part, the PR part of uh, this, what he's going at Twitter has created kind of, uh, I don't want to call it excitement, but it's created more recognition name recognition, kind of, you know, you there's an old saying, any publicity is good publicity, right? And that's kind of what's going on with Twitter right now is they are benefiting from the publicity that Elon Musk has created, and he tends to do that. On the other hand, what's the long-term effect of that? Is this a short-term boost, but then the long-term trajectory of Twitter still is, you know, negative because the business model really hasn't changed or the business model is changing too radically. Or, you know, as you talked about activism CEOs, that happens, you know, that happens when they get involved in um, activities that, you know, their stakeholders are for and against, you know, that's split into two. And there's a lot of people that don't like Elon Musk. You know, he's created such a persona for himself that um, there are, he, he kind of has that sp- camp as well, where you have people that are really for Elon Musk and think he's brilliant and like his ideas and like what he's doing. And then you have people that really dislike him. And, you know, that's that I believe in long term for a company, um, that's never a good thing because that truncates the amount of supporters, amount of customers, amount of advertisers that will be on your side. The model for Twitter is changing and Musk is at the forefront. Since its founding in 2006, the social media giant has been at the center of public discourse. Everyone from pop stars to presidents have lent their thoughts to the platform. But even with an audience base as high as 450 million users worldwide, it's not a company that's made money. Advertising has been inconsistent and has dried up at times, particularly during recessions. Musk has shifted towards the membership model, christening Twitter Blue shortly after the purchase. He charges $8 a month for the once-coveted blue check mark, previously a symbol of legitimacy for public figures. 
The initial rollout had disastrous and predictable results, with parody and impersonation accounts of famous public figures sprouting like weeds. NFL insider Adam Schefter, right-wing pundit Ben Shapiro, and even Musk himself were notable targets, and the program was suddenly shuttered less than a month after launch. The membership model, however, is at the center of Musk's plans to make Twitter profitable. Nalik explains. I mean, they seem to be trying to change that business model. Um, because when you rely strictly on advertising revenue, you know, obviously it's, it can fluctuate a lot. You know, advertising is one of the first things to go um, during a recession. And most CEOs out there think we are approaching a recession. And so you can see him changing kind of the business strategy of, of Twitter, relying purely on advertising revenue, which frankly didn't work in the past. You know, Twitter hadn't really turned much of a profit, so their business model hadn't proved itself. And so he's trying to add more, I would call membership. You know, something, it's kind of like a Costco model that you're part of the membership club and you buy into it. So that provides consistent revenue on top of that more other revenue that's more discretionary. And then can happenings at Twitter influence his other companies like Tesla? Is this something that can spill over and kind of his other ventures or is it fairly limited to what's going on with Twitter and kind of that social media space? Well, I think specifically what he's doing at Twitter is confined to Twitter. However, I mean, there's there's various views of Elon Musk. So if you have the view of Elon Musk that he's a brilliant person, that his presence adds um, to the company, you know, then you, then if you look at his other companies, then you have to say, well, how much is Elon Musk really participating in Tesla right now? How much is he really participating in space, you know, SpaceX? How much is he participating in these other companies? Given that most of attention is attention is on Twitter, and there isn't that economies of scope between his companies that have spillover effects between these companies. These are very much unrelated companies, and so if you if you have attention on one company, it really doesn't produce any benefits for these other companies. For the user base, Twitter's doomsday moment came late in November. Rumors of Twitter's demise following layoffs and attrition that cut the company's workforce in half spread like wildfire across the platform. But Twitter keeps trucking along and it seems like it will for the foreseeable future. Well, the best case scenario is he is Elon Musk comes up with a different business model for Twitter um, that somehow makes Twitter much more profitable. It's a, you know, he's trying to get a leaner culture um, and that it can survive in this kind of hostile industry that it's in. The worst case scenario for Twitter is this essentially just goes out of business because, you know, you see that its culture has been changed. It doesn't, it may not attract the best employees now because of the culture. And then the, the core infrastructure of Twitter has been gutted. And because of that, you know, if something were massive were to happen, such as, you know, a data leak or an outage or something like that, then, or there's a proliferation of too much hate speech or some, some big kind of moral panic that incites because of something that's going, gone on that's, you can trace back to the layoffs and to the cutting budgets and to that of Twitter, then you're going to see advertisers, advertisers flee. And once the advertisers start to flee, consumers flee, um, or users flee, and then it's just it's this cascading effect that eventually ends in its bankruptcy. And so this is a very general question, so feel free to answer it kind of however you want. From an academic perspective, you know, looking ahead 10, 15 years from now, what will people be looking at? Which aspects of Twitter's acquisition, which aspects of Elon Musk will people be looking at and studying in the future? 
Yeah, that is a very broad question. He has done, from, from my perspective, I guess, this is a strategy that Elon Musk has done over and over and over again through all the companies he's been a part of. He has this you know, mentality where he forces crisis. And he believes when he forces this crisis, he can, you know, make these cultural changes, get the employees he wants, you know, does everything else. But it's kind of a manufactured crisis. And that's what he's done at Twitter. The question is, while this has worked in startups, can it work for mature companies like Twitter? And so from an academic perspective, that, that's what I'm wondering, is does his management style, does his tactics actually work for mature companies, or is it really just a good strategy on the growth stage of companies? With the layoffs, headlines, Musk larger-than-life personality, the reinstatement of Trump on Twitter, and the subsequent ban of Kanye West, there have been numerous angles to cover. But the most important aspect of this story might not be the what, but the why. Well, the story is, is this a business perspective? Why did he buy Twitter? Because if you actually look at it from a business perspective, and I, I teach, this is, he, he's pretty much done everything that I would say not to do, right? So he's bought this company, waived due diligence on it, bought it at a premium without any other bidders in the marketplace. So he overpaid without any reasoning to do so. Then he takes the company, it's a, it hasn't been profitable, so it's a bad business model. He knows that going into it. And he guts it, the company. So it's kind of what to say not to do in acquisitions, whereas you don't want cultural classes, you don't want employees to leave, you don't want you know infrastructure, you know, key infrastructure projects hanging out there. All these different things and saying what not to do in an acquisition, it's been done. He's done it. So from a bit from an academic at least perspective, it's what not to do when you acquire a company from every stage of an acquisition. And so then you have to think back and think of the rationale of Elon Musk is why did he buy Twitter? Because in every business perspective, it, it's not a good purchase. It's not a profit-making company. He didn't get it out of value. He's disassembling it. It's not related to any other companies. It's not part of the portfolio. So it won't add any value to his other companies. So why? And I think that's the biggest takeaway is, was this just a hobby purchase? You know, other people purchase boats and cars and he purchased a $44 billion company. Um, you know, his other companies also have some sort of mission to them. You know, Tesla is kind of electrification of the market. You know, SpaceX is going to Mars. What is the mission of Twitter? I mean, some say free speech, but so is TikTok. So is these other companies that are already around that are actually more profitable. Why not buy those? And so I think that's the real motivation and question is what is his motivation? Because right now I don't, I don't know what it is because from a business perspective, it's certainly not there. Is this something you could compare to Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post or the, the gentleman who bought the Los Angeles Times? Is it, can, can it be compared to a legacy media purchase? It could be, it could be, um, but I, I wouldn't consider legacy media just more legacy. You know, is this, while is does this just kind of cement that legacy status or does this cement the status of just kind of him being able to dictate what the conversation is 
and media and society and things like that. And so that could be a motivation that could have been it to buy a big uh, megaphone. Um, but again, as I said, it's just not the, the business aspect doesn't add up. Thanks to Michael Nalick from the Daniels College of Business for joining us on this episode. For more information, check out the show notes at du.edu slash radio ed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor and Deborah Hasha is our production assistant. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Matt Meyer and this 